Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am pleased to introduce a new series of our podcast, which I will be doing with friend of the show and historian Richard Brookheiser. Most of our podcasts deal with movies that have already been made, but now we will turn to movies that should be made, to the stories of American founders, first of all, men who are admired in normal times and who should be in certain ways studied and imitated in strange times, in times of unrest or trouble, when institutions come into question and the future becomes obscure. Mr. Brookheiser has written biographies of Alexander Hamilton, who is the subject of our first conversation, but also George Washington, John Adams, Governor Morris, James Madison, Abraham Lincoln, of course, Founder's Son, the book is called, and the upcoming book on the fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall. These are wonderful books for young high school or college kids who have a taste for adventure and nobility. They are wonderful for people of all ages who want to engage in that most American habit, lifelong learning. And they are certainly the highest object of poetry, of storytelling in America. And that means nowadays of movies and computer games. And while it's the movie maker's job to dramatize the greatness of the founders, we think it's our job to talk about that greatness, to show in what it consists and in what ways it is still influencing our lives today. I will be writing some more about these books in the press. Links to them can be found in our posts. And of course, subscribe to our podcast, American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast, for future episodes in this series. Good afternoon, Mr. Brookheiser. Hi there. How are you? Good, good. Thank you very much for joining me. Yes, yes. As for the conversation, I don't think it requires much introduction. Okay. I'm sure you've talked about Hamilton for so long and so much that I'm not quite sure how to present it as a new thing, except as I suggested that I think it's a necessity for the times and for what is happening to media that something like movies and games should make him into a hero again, which he was and he's the most fitting for the role, I would say, of the founders. Well, yes. You know, his life had this romantic shape to it, coming from what strikes an American as nowhere, which is the Caribbean, although it was extremely prosperous when he was born there. But this prosperity was based on a plantation slave economy, which was even more rigid and even deadlier to the people who labored in it than even the American slave plantations. And then he comes from there to the United States, well, to the 13 colonies as a teenager, and he joins the revolutionary effort. He becomes an officer. He gets on George Washington's staff. He gets in George Washington's cabinet. He has a successful and controversial and significant career. And then he's shot and killed in a duel. Yes, that's very well put. His story is dramatic from start to finish in ways that are both enthusiastic and tragic so that the audience is just going to go along with him. And at the same time, there is so much that you can show. You can show, as you mentioned, the plantation system in a way that was even worse in the South, in the West Indies. You can show New York in the era when it first became a great city. You can show, of course, the revolution 
the convention that made the constitution the foundation of political institutions like the presidency and the secretary of the treasury in Hamilton's case and the incredibly violent, passionate, and formative disagreements of the 1790s, back when Americans not only called each other names, but threw each other in jail for political disagreements. War, business, politics, and the law, so many areas of life of American endeavor, such reflection and such examples of American destiny that are still relevant today, so many arenas of storytelling. This is a treasure waiting to be inherited, and we are finally starting to do that. You can't beat that as a story, and Ron Chernow told that very well in his best-selling bio, and as we all know, Lin-Manuel Miranda read it and put it out in Broadway, where it still runs. It's not surprising that he should have had this success if you just look at the events. What may be surprising is that someone was willing to go back to the founding era and take such an engaged interest in it. Sometimes seems to me that our historical imagination goes back to the Civil War, and it does embrace that, but for most people it stops there. That may be because photography effectively begins there. There are photographs of people in the 1840s, but they're pretty static. They're portraits. Uh, with the Civil War, we get post-battlefield photographs. We get pictures, whether they were staged or not, of corpses on the battlefield. We get pictures of people in uniform. Abraham Lincoln photographed very well. So that is a very vivid part of our national mind. Going back beyond the revolution is harder. The words are very eloquent, many of them, but visually we have to rely on paintings and really only a handful of paintings. So I tip my hat to Lin-Manuel Miranda for having made that leap and also for finding a way to make it modern and to make it accessible. Yeah, it struck me seeing the success of the show that when I was in college, there was a joke for a museum show, I bet you $10 that you don't know my name. It's strange how obscure Hamilton was, and I suppose it has a lot to do with uh, what recommends him now. <laughs> he, yeah. uh, his romanticism, his meteoric rise, and the way his life is described by energy, and the desire for motion, and to see the destiny of America as a thriving country always on the move, always achieving and doing new things. Yes, right. There's another thing going on, which is the symbiosis of his posthumous fame with that of Thomas Jefferson. Look, they're both blue-chip stocks. You're not going to go broke holding a portfolio of either of them. But over time, when one is up, the other is down. Hamilton's stock went up after the Civil War. The victorious Republican Party looked back to him as a kind of precursor. He was put on the $10 bill in the 1920s by Andrew Mellon. But then with the Depression, with the disgrace of Republicans, with the election of FDR, Jefferson comes back up. And FDR very consciously embraces Jefferson. He's the one who builds the Jefferson Memorial. He's the one who puts Jefferson and Monticello on the nickel. He's looking for that eloquence with which to combat fascism internationally, but he's also looking for an ancestor in the Democratic Party 
And even though Jefferson didn't call his party the Democrats, they were called the Republicans when Jefferson was alive, it is still the same party as Franklin Roosevelt's. It's a continuous organization. So he's legitimately claimed by Roosevelt as an ancestor. Also, Jefferson was demagogic on the subject of the rich. Jefferson and Madison and their polemics against Hamilton in the 1790s they fulminated against the opulent. That was a phrase that James Madison used to characterize Hamilton and his banker buddies. And this is the one thing in the DNA of that political party which has not changed over more than 200 years. The Jeffersonian party originally called the Republicans, which became the Democrats under Andrew Jackson. Their base of support has changed. Issues have changed. Everything about the party has changed. But the one thing that stayed consistent is polemics against the opulent. So Roosevelt, in embracing Jefferson, is also embracing that. And he was also, incidentally, looking for a Southerner because white Southern support was a crucial part of the Roosevelt coalition. So for all these reasons, he embraces Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, there are many things attractive about Jefferson's personality. He's a polymath. He's an architect. Uh, we know all the reasons. But then Sally Hemings becomes an issue first among historians and then among the public at large in the 1990s. And that, plus the civil rights movement, begins to chip away at Jefferson's reputation. And so as Jefferson falls, Hamilton rises. Uh, it's also the case that Hamilton was one of the founders of the New York Manumission Society. This was a society which lobbied to defend the rights of free blacks in New York State and ultimately to end slavery in New York State. New York was a slave colony and state all the years that Hamilton lived in it. When he first arrived in New York City, one-sixth of the population was black slaves. That's a smaller proportion than it was in his Caribbean homeland, but it was still pretty heavy. As a result of the New York Manumission Society and its activities, slavery ends in New York State by 1827. It took a long time. It was a gradual process, but it finally worked, and Hamilton was associated with that. So when you compare that record to Thomas Jefferson's record as a slave owner, as a man who seems to have fathered children with a woman that he owned, Hamilton looks better. So once again, the wheel has turned, and as Jefferson sinks a bit, Hamilton is allowed to rise correspondingly. Yeah, this brings up a big issue about Jefferson and Hamilton. Jefferson is America's Democrat man of the people. He speaks for everyone and everyone is uplifted in his self-consciously universal and even philosophical political rhetoric. Hamilton was a man of the people in a different way. He was looking to practical life. He was far more interested in the life of commerce and the law, which Americans are far likelier to be involved with one way or another than with lofty rhetoric. I think that's right. I mean, Jefferson is the better writer of the two. There's no question about that. Jefferson could write immortal prose. You know, you could shake him awake at 3 o'clock in the morning and he might say something immortal. I mean, he just had that gift. Hamilton is a good writer, but he's not at that level. But you're absolutely right. What Hamilton was concerned with was to open the gates of opportunity for Americans, to make Americans more hardworking and more prosperous. He wanted a system that would be encouraging to commerce, 
legally encouraging to commerce, practically encouraging in the sense that he wanted a Bank of the United States, which would stabilize the currency, which would offer loans, which would inject liquidity into the economy. He even hoped that Patterson, New Jersey might become an early manufacturing hub, and that did not happen in his lifetime. The man he picked to run the board of directors of the Society of Manufacturing in Patterson, New Jersey, turned out to be a crook. There were problems with it. Patterson would only become a manufacturing center after Hamilton died and other northern cities as well. That was the vision Hamilton had. And the most eloquent words I think he ever wrote or among them are in the report on manufacturers where he says that in a society of only farming, there are less opportunities in a society which also has farming and commerce. And that society has less opportunities than a society with farming, commerce, and manufacturing. And he says when there are more professions, more fields of activity available to people, they are more likely to find their own particular talent and develop their own particular skills. And when he's writing that, he's thinking, I believe, about Alexander Hamilton and how easily his life could have been just cut short, bottled up in the Caribbean. He might never have gotten out of there, never had a chance. But by coming to a country that was already more flourishing and more diverse than the island where he was born, he did get a chance, and he wanted to multiply those chances for future Americans. Yeah, and he fit perfectly in New York for that reason. New York was the best place he could have come. The three big cities when he's coming here are New York, Boston, Philadelphia. Of course, Boston was originally the Puritan religious experiment. Philadelphia was the Quaker religious experiment. The one was the city on the hill. The other was the city of brotherly love. But New York, originally New Amsterdam, was all about show me the money. <laughs> it was a post for extracting furs from the interior and trading them. And then it got into trading everything else. And getting and spending is always what New York has been about and Hamilton came to the right place. Yeah, it's an uncanny bit of luck, and it seemed as much as his early experience to prepare him to look at America's future very clear-eyed. His view of energy as the national quality and of American restlessness that would not allow people to settle in one occupation, say, generation after a generation, or in one way of life, generation after generation, but they would always search something that they could be good at and that they could do well by. Mm -hmm. He was, again, from personal experience, aware of how doing something one does not like dulls the mind and the efforts. Right, and it was more than luck. It was more than pure chance because one of his patrons in the Virgin Islands, his first job was at a merchant house called Beekman and Kruger, and the Krugers, it was a business headquartered in New York. It had a branch in St. Croix. It had another branch in Curacao and another one in Bristol. They were involved in the triangular traffic that we all read about in school. And so this was a trading firm that he worked for. And New York and the West Indies had a very close connection because we refined the sugar and then we sent staples to the West Indies that they either couldn't or couldn't afford to grow there because sugar was the crop they were turning out. So, yes, it's a lucky chance that he ended up in New York, but probably not so rare as all that. 
that because of this old New York West Indies connection. Yeah, and that's again the life of commerce, which is not just America's life, but is modern life. And it was the big connection between Britain and America. And even in his days in office, Hamilton insisted on the importance of commerce, on good credit, which is an international judgment on the life of business, and of course on keeping a neutral policy towards Britain that would allow as best as possible commerce to continue on which he thought the fate of the nation depended. Right. The one coincidence that when you read about this period you have to keep in mind is that George Washington is first inaugurated as president in April of 1789. The Bastille falls in July of 1789. That's three months later. So three months into our new experiment with a new constitution, the French Revolution begins. And for the next 25 years, the United States is going to be living in the shadow of a revolutionary world war. It's longer than World War II. It's almost as long as the Cold War. It's a very hot war. It involves the two great superpowers of the earth, Britain and France, plus every other European nation as well. And it's inflamed by ideology. And America is this small, new, still insecure nation on the edges of it all. And how do we navigate this crisis? And this is a preoccupation of Hamilton, of George Washington, of Thomas Jefferson, of the whole American political class. And the different approaches that they had to this international crisis helped define the first two-party system in American domestic politics. Yes, and of course the twin tendencies that emerged have been with America ever since in one partisan configuration or another, more of a neutrality policy or more interventionism. And the issue of commerce, because it's both domestic and international, brings up this other part of Hamilton's thought. Aside from looking for prosperity for America and opportunities for people to thrive, He was also worried about the fact that war is just dangerous in itself and it's threatening to a young commercial nation, especially one so given to an ideological press and to an ideological partisanship. Mm -hmm. America could tear itself apart by ending up with English and French partisans pressing their case too hotly and of course it could involve itself in dangerous warfare which might break its unity. Right. Now, in fairness to Thomas Jefferson and to James Madison, they did not want the United States to actively aid France in this great ideological struggle. They, too, wanted to keep America out of a shooting war. But their ideological sympathies certainly were with France up until the rise of Napoleon. Then they begin to cool off. But for the first 10 or 11 years of the French Revolutionary period, they are emotionally pro-French. Here is a new republic. They were our allies in our revolutionary struggle. Why shouldn't we help them as best we can short of violating our neutrality? Why shouldn't we go up to the edges of it in order to help them? Hamilton, who, you know, spent years fighting the British in the Continental Army, nevertheless realizes that most of our trade is with England. England has the things we need much more than France does. And therefore, not only does our private economy depend on it, but the government depends on it because the main source of revenue is tariffs. Tariffs come from trade. And the bulk of our trade is with Britain. 
So why pick a fight with Britain? This is always governing Hamilton. He is willing to stand up to the British on occasional issues as they arrive. There's one point in the Washington administration where the British ask, they're feeling out the administration to see if they can march an army from Canada across American territory to attack Spanish territory on the West Coast, because it looks like Britain and Spain may go to war. And, you know, what Hamilton tells the British agent who's feeling him out on this question is, no, of course not, you can't do that. And so they back off, they drop that. So there Hamilton was willing to say to the British, no, we're not going to do something you want. But in general, he's in favor of friendly relations. He doesn't want to provoke them. And this is an issue which shapes the first American two-party system. Hamilton and his party, the Federalist Party, has this view of Britain and of the importance of its trade with us, also their suspicion of the French Revolution and the direction it's taking. Jefferson and Madison and their party, the Republicans, later to become the Democrats, think great, another Republican in the world. Isn't this wonderful? And they ignore and downplay and disbelieve the accounts of atrocities that cross the Atlantic as the French Revolution becomes more radical and more violent. And they really don't emotionally disconnect from the French Revolution until the rise of Napoleon. That makes them cool off a bit, because Napoleon is a man on horseback, he's a military figure, that is something Jefferson and Madison and their party does not like. But until then, which is practically at the end of Hamilton's life, they think French Revolution is just fine. And Jefferson, he writes a notorious letter to an American diplomat, William Short, who's writing home about the violence that he's seeing in the French Revolution on the spot. It's called the Adam and Eve letter because he said if everyone there were killed except an Adam and Eve and they free, France would be better off than it now is. I mean, if you take that literally, that is a chilling, bloodthirsty sentiment. Yeah. How literal was Jefferson? I mean, you know, a lot of good writers, when they get a phrase, they go with it. Certainly, this was a quality of Jefferson's. His rhetoric is so powerful it could run away with him. But that's what he wrote. That's what he put down on paper to an American diplomat. Hamilton would never have said something so foolish. Yeah, at his most uh, rhetorical, Jefferson shoots off and says he would rather see half of Europe dead than see the French Revolution fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a self-caricature of principle without prudence. Whereas Hamilton, of course, was the opposite. He may have seemed unprincipled, especially to many of his adversaries, but his prudence made him the one American Burke when it came to the French Revolution. Right. He writes a letter very early on to Lafayette, who's an old friend of his from the American Revolution. And Lafayette was a leader of the French Revolution in its early, more moderate phase. And, you know, Hamilton writes him a letter at the end of 1789, and he's congratulating Lafayette and wishing him and France well. But he has some worries, and they're pretty prescient. He talks about the refractoriness of your nobles. In other words, your nobles are not going to admit any changes at all. They're just going to dig in your heels. And he talks about the philosophic reveries of your politicians. In other words, people who don't have political experience, but they think they know everything because they've theorized about it. And this will have worse and worse consequences as the revolution goes on. So it was a warning that turned out to be very farsighted. 
And so, even when he seems immoral on these matters, Hamilton has prudence and a real concern for a common good, even for what's going to happen to the French just as French, not in relationship to America. At his best, he's for armed neutrality, which is the opposite of principle without prudence. He doesn't want war, but he's deeply aware that a lot of politics is deeply moral and a nation is contemptible if it is weak. Yes, he knows that America is weak. It's still a small country, finding its feet. He hopes that it will become great and strong, but he knows we're not there yet, and he knows we need time, and we need peace, and we need prosperity. So, you know, even longer than the short range for the middle term, that is his guiding principle in foreign affairs. So there are these two great shows of prudence that make Hamilton a founder. One, his great reports and his great work at Treasury to help establish the American economy on a foundation that will thrive and that is still, of course, recognizable today. And the other one on foreign policy, policy of armed neutrality, which in a sense is even more important because it was even less obvious to people. The importance of ideological politics and partisanship in domestic politics being played out through issues of foreign politics in a country that had mostly disbanded its armed forces is astonishing to any student of politics. Fewer the people like Hamilton who wanted a real army and nevertheless not to use it for any partisan or ideological purposes, but only to be able to protect American interests. And I would add a third point, which is maybe the hardest to discern of all three. And that's Hamilton's legal acumen and his concern for the importance of contracts and contracts being recognized in American law. And this will flower after he's dead, though he really lays the groundwork for it. After he leaves the Treasury Department and he's supporting him and his family by being a lawyer in New York City, he's asked to give an opinion on a case arising in Georgia about a land deal. The state of Georgia had sold off 30 million acres of land at a bargain price, one and a half cents an acre. They had a lot of debt. They badly needed a sale to keep their books balanced. It was really a fire sale of what's now Alabama and Mississippi. Well, the people in Georgia revolted at this sale. They accused the legislature of having been bribed to make it, which was true. Every single legislator got $1,000 who voted for this thing. And then the year after the sale was made, this is called the Yazoo sale, Georgia passed a law saying we will not recognize this sale. We repeal it. Anyone who tries to bring it into a Georgia court, any official of the state who recognizes it in any way will be fined $1,000. We expunge it from our law books. In other words, they wanted to make it impossible to go into a Georgia court and sue to a uphold a purchase from the Yazoo sale. Okay, well, a lot of speculators had bought this land, and they wanted to make good on their investment by reselling it. So some of them go to Alexander Hamilton, now private lawyer, and they ask his opinion. You know, what is the legal status of this sale, given what the state of Georgia has done? Hamilton writes a little 500-word opinion where he says that for governments to renege on their contracts would be both unjust and unwise. But there's a third factor, which is that Georgia is part of the United States, and the United States Constitution has a contract clause. 
Congress nor the state shall pass laws infringing on contracts. And Hamilton knows this clause very well because he's probably responsible for putting it in the Constitution. There was some debate in Philadelphia about it. Inconclusive, the contract clause first appears in the final draft of the Constitution, which was produced by the Committee of Style, on which Hamilton sat. He was one of five members of the Committee of Style. So he probably stuck the contract clause in the Constitution. So he's saying Georgia has to honor the contract clause because of the Constitution. When this case finally comes to the Supreme Court in 1810, This is six years after Hamilton's been shot. Chief Justice John Marshall, the case is called Fletcher versus Peck. These were two speculators. One of them had sold some Georgia land to the other, and the guy who bought it said, oh, wait, Georgia has reneged on the sale, so I want my money back. So they went to court. And it came up to the Supreme Court, and Marshall rules that Georgia cannot expunge the Yazoo contract. They made this deal, and the deal has to go through. And his opinion is essentially an extended version of the little 500-word version that Hamilton had written in the 1790s. So this was a posthumous effect of Alexander Hamilton's legal thinking, which was to make sure that the United States would be a country in which contracts would be honored. And this had huge and long-standing effects on American business and legal culture. And the reason I know about that, my latest book coming out in November is about John Marshall, called John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. And he had known Hamilton. He, He was friendly with Hamilton. He was an admirer of Hamilton's. And it's fun to see how Hamilton's thought percolates through many of Marshall's great decisions. But this one, Fletcher versus Peck, the sanctity of contracts is one of the most important. Of course, we have to do a talk about the fourth chief justice when the book hits the shelves. I'd be happy to. And I'm glad you brought him up because the case shows so well Hamilton's rhetoric at his best that he gives you prudence, he gives you principle, what's wise and what's just, but he also gives you the technical details that make it stick legally because everything else is kind of disputatious. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, Marshall's Supreme Court decisions, his major ones are 9,000, 10,000, sometimes 12,000 words long. This is a little 500-word opinion, and it's just distilled. It's like a shot of vodka or something. It's just you get the bang right away. Yeah, what Jefferson could do with political philosophy for regimes, Hamilton could do for the philosophy of law. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in a country so dependent on commerce and at the same time comprised of different jurisdictions that also temporarily overlap in crazy ways, What does the Constitution do to the 13 states after it comes into effect? And of course, what are the relationships going to be between the warring parties, the loyalists and the patriots, after the revolutionary? Getting contract right and trying to establish, however difficultly, a sound basis for property and to deal with all the conflicts resulting in Hamilton's New York City itself, occupied by the British for so many years during the war. Getting these things right is essential to establishing the trust required for commerce. Right. You're alluding to one of Hamilton's most important pre-constitutional cases. This was in the mid-1780s, and it had to do with the British occupation of New York during the war. It was Rutgers versus Waddington. 
Mrs. Rutgers was a patriot who had owned a brewery in New York City, and uh, when the British occupied the city, they allowed it to be rented by a man named Joshua Waddington, who was acting on behalf of British merchants, who would then use the property for their own benefit. And this was done according to the laws of war, which gave the occupying power the right to make certain legal decisions and make them legally. I mean, they weren't just taking it. They were saying, okay, now it's being rented uh, by this guy. And so then after they left, she sued for damages. She said this had been seized, and she was suing Waddington. And this was a very popular, you know, case, because here she was. She was this patriot. She was this widow. Isn't this a shame? And Hamilton defended Waddington on the grounds that the laws of war, which the United States and Britain both accepted, had given the occupying nation the power to do this. His point was what Joshua Waddington was doing, he was entitled to do under the laws of war. And the New York state law that allows patriots to sue people should be overturned because it flies in the face of the laws of nations. It also flies in the face of the Treaty of Paris we have just signed, which in arranging how Britain would leave the United States and what would happen to people who had taken the British side during the conflict, had said there'd be no reprisals. So he says it's against both the law of nations and it's against the Treaty of Paris. And so therefore, the New York law that allows Mrs. Rutgers to sue Joshua Waddington should be ignored by this court. And the court sort of half bought his argument. They allowed her to recoup some money, but not as much as she was asking for. But it was a powerful argument. And among the people it impressed was George Washington, because he was sent the decision by the judge who handed it down. And he wrote back a polite letter of acknowledgement, you know, thanking him. But I'm sure it was just one more reminder to him that this bright colonel who had been on his staff was going on and being a bright lawyer in private life. Just yet another reminder, if he needed it, that here was a talented guy and, you know, someone he might consider if he ever has a post-war career, which, of course, both Washington and Hamilton do. And it's, again, an example of this triple rhetoric He gives them a principle of justice, the law of nations, which all combatants in that case adhere to, or professed at least. And it's a matter of prudence as well, because you're going to stir up a lot of conflicts, not least of all with Britain, which still has forts in New York State manned by British soldiers, to say nothing of all the other uh, American possessions the British had, shipping, etc., and also included the technicalities that allow the judge to have his decision and not have popular politics start a mob. Well, that's right. You're also telling people who made their peace with the occupiers, which many did, we're not going to persecute you for that. You know, we're not going to harass you for that. If you committed crimes, okay, that's something different. But if you continue to live your life And if you obeyed the rules that the occupiers set up, we're not going to hound you for that. And this was important to the future prosperity of New York because many prosperous people were in that position. They hadn't fled when the British took over. They just hunkered down. And that may not be the bravest thing in the world to do. It may not be the most moral thing in the world to do. But frankly, a lot of people do that. And so what do you want to do to them after you win? Do you want to beat up on them? Do you want to hound them? Do you want to chase them out? Do you want to be punitive? 
Uh, a lot of people were in favor of being punitive, but Hamilton takes the view, no, look, we've won, that's the most important thing, but let's keep a rule of law. Let us allow these people to continue to live here, to continue to carry on their business, and we will profit from that. Yes, indeed. It'll make for civil peace. And this opens up a further point about Hamilton, his great trust in a national government and in fact he thought it absolutely necessary precisely because in any given state as in New York after 1781 it was perfectly possible that popular politics with elections with the state legislature and all that could destroy just about any rule of right in this case concerning property that got in the way of a majority that's right, and this was not a concern unique to him. This was a concern shared by most of the people who were pushing for a new constitution in the middle to late 1780s. Hamilton, of course, James Madison at this stage in his life, is very alarmed by the just blizzard of lawmaking that the newly independent states, including his own state of Virginia, underwent. And, uh, you know, it could be capricious. They could rule one thing one year and then take it back the next year, and sometimes they overstep their bounds, and, you know, they would oppress people, they would come to bad decisions, and there was a sense that the new states especially were getting drunk on their new powers, and it would be better off for everybody if there was a structure which would have some checks in it. Now, you know, the trick was to design such a structure which would itself be checked. You know, you wanted to check the excesses at the state level, but you didn't want the federal government to become overwhelming. So this was the great conundrum that Hamilton, Madison, Washington, Jefferson, that they all faced. They came up with slightly different answers. I mean, similar enough that they all accepted the Constitution, signed it, served under it, and so on. Different enough that a two-party system arose, and, you know, in the long run, different enough that we did get a civil war. But that is long after all these people are dead and gone. Certainly in their own lifetime, they built something that held together. And even with the frenzy, often, of their own uh, political contention, which begins in the Washington administration and really continues right through the War of 1812, even that was not enough to tear this structure apart. So they built very wisely, and Hamilton is one of the considerable builders in this process. Yes, the more one reads about the tumults of the revolutionary era and, in fact, that entire generation, the more one is surprised at how well the political institutions held together when... Uh... You know, one thing that was going on, beginning in the Washington administration, when Washington is elected, people don't know there are going to be two parties. Parties are mentioned nowhere in the Constitution. You can read statements by, oh, Jefferson and Adams and Washington himself about how parties are bad or I don't belong to a party. We should never have parties. But lo and behold, two parties appear almost immediately. The party of Hamilton, of John Adams, of George Washington, they're the Federalists. The other party, as we've said, is the Republican Party, which later became the Democratic Party and is still with us. So here are these two parties and they're contending. And if you read the rhetoric, you know, it's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And both parties are guilty of this. 
and sometimes even Hamilton himself. I mean, there's one letter he writes in the uh, late 1790s. He's writing to an old friend of his, Robert Troop, and he's talking about an upcoming election. And he says, I think it's even in a P.S., he's just tossing this off. He says, well, the stakes in this election, of course, are order, liberty, and heads. And heads. So what does that mean? That means, well, if Jefferson and his bad guys win, they'll set up guillotines. Now, did Hamilton really believe that? I don't know, but Federalists did. They wrote as if they did. And certainly, people on Jefferson's side, they used model guillotines in parties that they held. You know, when they were celebrating the American Revolution or the French Revolution, they'd have a little model guillotine and they might, you know, chop off the head of a pig if a a pork roast was being served, that kind of thing. So, you know, what we have on Twitter today, this was happening then. And in a way, it was even worse because it wasn't just the dolts and the morons who were doing it. It was these great men who were participating in this frantic politics. And the only reason I can think of as to why it happened, partly it's the offstage influence of the French Revolution. I mean, we are living across the Atlantic Ocean from a volcano, you know, a volcanic eruption that's going on for 25 years. And that's just got to affect you. But the other thing is the new system was new. You know, we know now if your party loses an election, you're going to have another chance in two years if it's a congressman, in four years if it's a president, six years if it's a senator. You know, you're going to have another shot. They didn't believe that. They knew that's what the laws said, but they didn't really internalize it. You know, it was all new. And the thought was, Jesus, if the other guys get in, we are screwed. You know, we are just going to be screwed. So the Federalists thought if Jefferson and his gang come in, they're going to tear the government apart. And Jefferson thought if these Federalists stay in, they're just going to lock themselves in power forever. And they're going to turn it back into a monarchy. You know, that's what they thought. And for all their brilliance, For all their brilliance and their foresight, they didn't know something that Americans have learned, which is that the wheel turns. The system is such that the wheel turns, it turns around, you know, and when you lose, you can look forward to a victory down the road. And when you win, you got to be mindful that you're not always going to be in there. And I think that's something that has sunk in. You know, you wouldn't believe it if you go on Twitter now, but I do still believe that people still understand that. It's not something that they had yet really fully accepted in the 1790s, in the 1800s. Hamilton, of course, dies in 1804, really right up to the War of 1812. It's still boiling and burning. So that's another feature of Hamilton's world that we must never forget, the the craziness of the partisanship, which infects the rhetoric of almost everybody, really almost everybody involved in it. Yeah, they proved both that America could hang together and also that the American way is to go crazy over politics in uncertain times and to say and to profess, perhaps only half believing, the craziest ideas and the craziest fears. You know, there's a love of abstraction that the press feeds and it's inevitable because when people are free, they're also free to go crazy. And (laughs) Here's my epitome for how crazy it was. When Vice President Cheney shot that guy, it was an accident and he lived. 
When Vice President Burr shot Alexander Hamilton, it was not an accident, and he died. Yeah. You know, Hamilton, a signer of the Constitution, killed in a duel about politics. There was another signer of the Constitution, Richard Spate, also killed in a duel based on politics. Thomas Jefferson put a man on the Supreme Court, Brockholst Livingston, who had killed a man in a duel about politics. <laughs> you know, no one mentioned this in his confirmation hearing. I mean, it didn't come up. And remember also that dueling is illegal everywhere. Yes. It is illegal in every state. Deaths and duels are considered murders. They are never prosecuted because that's what gentlemen do. And no jury would convict. It would be jury nullification. Aaron Burr is actually indicted after he shoots and kills Hamilton, but the prosecution never goes forward. You know, and under the rules of dueling, you are not supposed to duel because of a political argument. It had to be an offense to your honor. But all these offenses to honor had their basis in political feuds that these men were having. So we're not at that point yet, so we can pat ourselves on the back for that. Yeah, the rhetoric is as crazy as ever, but life is far calmer, and people are, in certain ways, far more reasonable than if you judge them by the rhetoric. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. There was that crazy guy who shot up the Republican baseball team a year ago, but let us assume that he is an outlier. Yeah. Political violence, in this sense, was not known at that time. Political assassinations come later into American life. But for the most part, and in the time that has passed since, Representative Scalise and the other men were shot. Happily, nobody died. Things have calmed down rather than become more agitated. Right. Well, from your lips to God's ears. Indeed. But there is an observable difference between the crazy rhetoric and the normality of life that finds its pattern back in the days of the founding and of the men who had to live with the system they built. And it turned out to make them somewhat crazy, but also to be doable. Mm -hmm. They had to practice their theories and live with those laws, and it turned out to be tremendously successful. Unaccountably successful, really. Well, right. You know, we've mentioned the French Revolution. And look at France over this same period of time. I mean, this great nation, this great culture, and five republics, two empires, two monarchies, fascism. I mean, it's just a much more hectic political existence than we have had. And I think we can take some pride in that. We don't eat as well, but we rule ourselves better. Yeah, it's a very good point, and it's all in all a good trade-off to make. American politics had a better ground and cultivated that ground better in return. And it's useful at least in times like now when people are again going for crazy rhetoric and worrying deeply about what the institutions are going through to see this heroic age of crazy rhetoric and an astounding foundation. There are all sorts of things to learn and to reconsider how Americans live as opposed to how they talk about it in the press. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think maybe that's a good note to end on. That's a good lesson for us all to take away. Well, thank you very much for joining me, and let's talk about Governor Morris the next time. Oh, I'm always happy to talk about Governor Morris. Uh, if you have a girlfriend, make sure she doesn't listen. She'll <laughs> run off with him. <laughs> exactly. It was the original of hide your daughters, hide your wives. As anti-romantic as Hamilton was romantic and nevertheless incredibly prescient himself. Nobody was more prescient about the rise of the presidency. That's right. That's right. Okay, so next time we'll do him. All the best, sir. Thanks again. 
Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.